Several years ago, um, in fact, uh, I believe it was really started before in my mind, my approach to the preaching opportunity, but uh, really solidified while I was uh, in classes with Dr. Gray Allison uh, at Mid-America, and we talked about expository preaching. Now, there's other kinds. There's topical preaching, and there's other forms and other ways, and, and the gospel can be communicated in a variety of types of preaching. But for the pastor, and that's always been my heart uh, call, pastor, teacher, and uh, it's really important that we understand the bigger call of the pastor as far as selecting what kind of preaching we're going to do on a regular basis. And so early on, I just saw the genius, if you will, of expository preaching, of, of going through a book at a time, just wherever you left off, pick up there. And that's what we've been doing here in John. But there's a couple of reasons practically that Dr. Allison mentioned. First of all, the preacher never has to worry about what he's going to preach next Sunday. Amen? That, I mean, you just know. Wherever you stop, that's where you start studying uh, in, in fervor with, uh, with great interest and, and depth uh, for the next week. So there's never any delay. There's never any, oh, you know, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? That's there. And uh, second, he said, uh, on the part of the church, he said, listen, you're... You're a pastor, teacher, you're a shepherd, not just a speaker, not just a, 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 a trove of knowledge for people to come by once a week and hit, listen to you. You're really going to be living with them as a shepherd. Not a, a rancher of cattle drives cattle, okay? He gets behind them and, and drives them. A shepherd walks among them, maybe not in, in, uh, in the very center, but just a little bit toward the front, and the, and the sheep continue to kind of hover around him, especially when they're moving from one pasture to another. And uh, he said, you're going to know people. You're going to know a lot about them. They're going to come to you during the week. They're going to have their hurts and their heartaches. They're going to share with you things that are going on in their lives. They're going to make mention as you're in the midst of a ministry opportunity, a, a serve-out opportunity like we have with Bellevue Loves Memphis and all those kind of things. They're going to tell you things in just the midst of normal conversation as well as private counseling moments that are very dear to them. And sometimes, being fallen creatures that we are, if a preacher the very next Sunday talks about the subject that you shared with him on Tuesday afternoon, you look at him and say, you're preaching at me. You're using your pulpit as a, as a grandstand against me. Or you've, you're revealing, everybody knows who you're talking about. And well, that's not the case. I'm just preaching through the book. Uh, and again, you ha I think every preacher, even the expository preachers, have to be careful about not uh, letting current situations within their ministry affect the way they see and, and, and interpret and then preach God's Word. That's, that's a fair uh, uh, reminder. But really, the, the hope is that not only will you know what to prepare for each week, and not only will you be able to speak into ministry needs without having to feel like you're pointing out anyone. But the third thing is you continue to grow yourself as a believer, as a follower of Christ first. Before I'm a pastor teacher, I'm just a child of God. Thank God for the cross and thank God for that change. But the reality is that first and foremost, God wants to do more. I've learned early on in ministry, God is much more interested in what he's doing in my life than what I'm going to do in that church's life. Let me say that again. God is much more interested in what he wants to do in this preacher's life than what I think I'm going to do in that church's life. 
You know, I, I'm not, yes, I believe pastors, especially as our pastor, Dr. Gaines, is a gift to the church. Uh, a lot of times churches don't realize God gave that person or that, that, that man to be your senior pastor, be your shepherd because of what you need, and he knew it. How many of you ever got to Christmas and uh, opened up a gift that your mom knew you needed, but you didn't ask for? And you're like, what is this? A sweater? Really? You know, I, I didn't ask for a sweater. I asked for a BB gun, you know. But you got a sweater. You needed it. Well, a lot of times what we need to understand is that pastors are, and I'm not self-promoting here, I'm really talking about our pastor. Dr. Rogers was dear to our family. He was the one that officiated, uh, took part in Wendy and I's wedding. Uh, Mrs. Rogers uh, came by uh, our uh, residence uh, just after uh, we had sadly lost our first child uh, in pregnancy and ministered to Wendy. Uh, have great respect and love for the Rogers. I mean, epic, epic, iconic pastor. I don't believe there's any Southern Baptist man of my generation that hasn't been impacted by the personal ministry of Dr. Rogers. And he was a gift, not only to the church broadly, but to this church specifically and how he led us. Those of you who walked with him throughout those 32 plus years of ministry know that he was a gift to us. But so is Dr. Steve Gaines. So was Dr. Ramsey Pollard. So were all those that had served before them. They were there, they were gifts and unique men, different in many, many ways. But each was a gift, maybe not the one you wanted or thought you should have. You know, the joke about, you know, pastor ought to comb his hair on both sides, be tall but short, you know, be, be pleasantly plump but always fit. You know, it's all, you know, it's just all kinds of expectations that pulpit committees can bring to a pastor's interview. But the reality is that when God puts a people and a pastor together, they're to grow together. The man is to be growing, and that's why we talk about expository preaching and, and leading people to understand what the Word says. But also understanding that when we're in the Word very uh, intentionally, very uh, or in an organized fashion, and we're, we're looking for God to show us more and more of Himself, that changes how we see ministry and how we do ministry. I believe not just changes, but changes it for the better. And uh, as we look into the God's Word, this is the third session, third message that we're going to look at out of John chapter 7. John chapter 7, we pick up in verse 37. We're going to go through the end of the chapter, or at least we'll get really, really close to the end of the chapter in verse 52. And we're going to talk about uh, again, all this chapter up to this point has been around the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. It was a harvest festival, as we, as we talked about earlier. It was um, noted that uh, it, was a, it was, as far as the involvement and the, the celebration and the, the amount of effort and, and resources that went into this, it was probably uh, the largest of the annual festivals. And as such, it brought people. Now, every man who was 
uh, a Jew uh, who had had his bar mitzvah, that was, he was a true son of Israel, and lived still within 20 miles of Jerusalem at the time, was expected to come every year. Now, many came from farther than that. And that's why the, the, the city streets of Jerusalem would swell during these festivals, and especially this one. But it was a time of great celebration. And so as we begin again in verse 37 of chapter 7, let's read there together. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit. Now this is John the writer telling us, because if he'd left it unsaid, we'd have all kinds of uh, uh, various interpretations about what Jesus was talking about. But John clarifies it for us. But this he spoke of the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why do, did you not bring him? That's what we sent you for. You didn't do your job, is what they're inherently asking. The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But the crowds which do, excuse me, but this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. That is, they are under the curse of God because of their ignorance of the law. Now, we'll get back to that in a moment. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, that is one of the free, one of the rulers that are gathered in this conversation said to them, Now, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Now, he's not pro-Jesus in his statement. He's not pro-ruler in his statement. He's just pro-law. Let's follow our understood, seasoned, traditional practice of assessing the right or wrong of a person's preaching, teaching, doctrine. They answered him, not even paying attention to, of course that's the way we should do it. Let's, let's do that instead of what we're thinking about, taking him, seizing him, and killing him without any more than a kangaroo court. They answered him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Now we're going to stop there. First of all, in your notes this afternoon, I want you to see the glorious announcement. The glorious announcement. Jesus opens up this part of chapter 7, this narrative of what was happening there at the Feast of Tabernacles, 
with a, a very clear invitation. First of all, we see in verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, I want you to be reminded, we've said this before, but I was not here last week. Um, I was preparing for a move uh, from one house to another. Thursday, I signed papers owing the rest of my life to some bank that will probably change before the day is done today. Uh, they'll sell it off and all that. Been moving this week. So I missed last Wednesday, and I'm sorry I always love being here on Wednesday nights. But the reality is that not only were we moving, but I am any moment expecting, and if I run out of here abruptly, it's because my daughter's about to have her baby, uh, her fifth baby. So, you know, we're not the Duggars yet, but hey, we're going there. Um, <laughs> love, love my babies. Love, and John Luke Asa is going to be one, one wonderfully loved little boy. Now, all that said, I want to remind you, what is the Feast of Tabernacles? It is a reminder that they lived in booths, these very, uh, almost like a pergola of sorts, open. It's not, a, it's not like a, let's dry it in and you know, put sheetrock up and all that kind of thing. It's not that kind of booth that they're living in. But for these days, they live in these very airy, in fact, they were designed so that the, at night the families could look up and see the stars. So it's very, very light. It's outdoor camping. It's, it's September of our calendar, typically early October maybe, uh, in the way they, they're on a, uh, a different type of calendar than we are. The reality is that this was a reminder, of because they were living in booths, of how they were, one, led out of Exodus, in the Exodus out of Egypt into the promised land over the 40 years of wilderness wanderings, that they were always provided for and that God was faithful in that season to an entire nation to not only bring them out, but ultimately bring them into the promised land. So that's, that's the, the, the feast, that's the celebration that's happening. Now, there's a ceremony that is happening every day as well. It's the water ceremony. Now, what would happen is that a priest would go to the Pool of Siloam and, and take a golden pitcher and fill it with water. Remember, that was where the man couldn't get for 38 years. He had laid there, couldn't get to it because when the angel rustled the waters, according to the legend, uh, that he wasn't the first one, so he was never healed. But Jesus healed him. Well, that same watering hole, if you will, was the place where they would gather water in a golden pitcher, and through the streets, the people would follow along singing <laughs> psalms of ascent. Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, typically. But let me just take you back to, if you stick your finger there in John 7, go back with me to the prophet Isaiah. If you turn back as far as Psalms, you've gone too far. A psalm, uh, excuse me, uh, I'll say it again. Isaiah chapter 12, when they would draw the water, when the priest would lower the pitcher and draw the water out of that pool, the people would quote this verse in unison. Chapter 12 of Isaiah, verse 3. Therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. That's what they were saying. Every day, 
They would take that water pitcher, the priest would begin to march through, and he would march from there all the way to the temple mount to the altar. And he would circle the altar one time and then pour out the water there. And the people, would, I mean, as he raised it up, they would say, higher, higher. And in, in response, he would indeed lift it up higher. And there, it was a sign of increased and overflowing joy. And they would pour out and end that ceremony. Six days this went. Now, you have to remember, originally, there was a seven-day feast ordained. Later on, before the time of Christ, an eighth day, not of celebration, but a, a, a solemn assembly, a day of reflection and prayer and contemplation was added. Now, what happens is, on the seventh, they've done this six days, on the seventh of the original ceremony of the, of the festivities, the water ceremony, same thing. They draw the water. They quote Isaiah 12, 3. They walk through. They're holding uh, what is called an ethrog in one hand. That's a, it's, a, it's a citrus fruit. It looks like a large, very bumpy uh, lemon, okay? And it's got a lot more pulp than our typical lemon that you would find. And in the other hand, they would have a, um, an arrangement, if you will, a, a, a combination of palm and willow and um, a myrtle uh, branches, and they would hold this. And they, as they went through, shouting and singing and joyfully uh, praising the Lord through the Psalms, they would walk through the streets and see all this take place. On the seventh day, they would do that. But on this time, just like they went around the walls of Jericho seven times, they went around the altar. The priest would walk around the altar seven times before pouring it out. Now, all of this is in the water ceremony as part of the Feast of Tabernacles because you know how uh, if you've grown, if you know anything about farming, the, the, my understanding, because I've never been a farmer, I, my family came from farms and I spent summers on the farm. I know what it is to haul hay. Anybody know what hauling hay is? No, no, I'm not talking about these big rolls with machines that do all the work. I'm talking about, hey, look out, there's a 50-pound bale headed your, toward your head, shooting out toward the wagon that you're standing on precariously. I did, I did that, but I, knowing a lot about farming, but I understand that as the fruit ripens, it, the plant dries out toward the end. And you want a, a, a harvest, a dry harvest, so you can get in before it begins to rot because of moisture. But there's also a, a follow-up because it got dry they would want water. And a good rainy season right here at the end of the, the Feast of Tabernacles would indicate for most of the, the uh, people that the Lord was going to provide not only the early but the latter rains. And then the next year was going to be good. So they were praying for rain, praying for water, praying for the nursed earth, praying for God's provision in the year ahead, not just looking back at what he had done in the past in the Exodus, but what is he going to do in the future and celebrating what we enjoy now because of the good harvest this year. So you understand the whole concept. But here in the midst, look at me verse again, back in John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 37. He says, it's, it begins, John frames this moment. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast. Now scholars will tell you, we don't know whether it was the seventh, the last day of the original Feast of Tabernacles observance, or if it means the last day, the eighth, that day of reflection. There's a, 
listen, we could spend days and weeks and never figure it out for sure. But my, let me just share with you. I think it was the eighth day. Now, I'm not saying that as, you know, that's gospel. You know, that's, that's just, again, my observed opinion is this. That they had gone through all of this. And it was almost as if this is what we're supposed to do. This is what has been ordained by the, by the elders for centuries now. And, and we've got this down. And this is what we do to let God know that we deserve, desire, not deserve, but desire his blessing. So we've done all that we can to, ma- to manipulate God. To give us what we want. All of six days. Seven days, the seven rounds around the altar, all the water's been poured out. Now the day of reflection and prayer that God would answer and hear Israel's plea for water in right amount in the, day, in the year ahead. Day of reflection, day of contemplation, a quieter day. Not that it was silence, but it was just not the big celebration. And it says, look with me in verse 37, on that day, Jesus stood and cried out. Wait a minute, this is a quiet day. This is not supposed to be a loud day. Shh. No. Jesus, look with me. The context is they've been observing the water ceremony for a week straight. And he says this. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, said, from his innermost being, that is from the center of who he is. Some say that's the stomach. Some say that's the heart. Uh, others even say it's the womb. Most likely, most interpreters say it's, it's, the, it's the stomach in the sense that, not, not literally, but it's that core of who you are. He says, from his innermost beings, being will flow rivers of living water. You want to assure God's blessing? You want to know the assurance that you can go? And you, yes, you, you need to work the land. You need to pray. You need to continue to trust God for when and how and how much rain comes and how much sunshine You need to do everything you know to make sure that the ground is fertile and kept fertile. Steward the land as well as you can. But if you really want to know God's blessing and provision, it's simple. Believe in me. That's the real work. In fact, it's not a work at all. It's just taking God at his word. It's nothing you and I do. Lord, our trust is not in our religious exercises, in our grandiose celebrations of who we are as your people. It's not about that. It's about believing in you. And that's my work. That's my responsibility. You have offered, you've called even me to yourself. But my job is not to worry about the future. I can't manipulate God with water ceremonies that he'll provide rain in the right portion in the right moments. But I can trust a God who loves me more than life itself to take care of my every need. Believe 
in me. Scripture goes on. Look with me. Verse 39 says, But this he spoke with the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. That is, Pentecost has not happened. John's, again, framing this. There's a time and, it says, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Glorified, what do you mean? Jesus, the, a lot of scholars go a lot of different ways, but here most of the, the conservative Bible-believing professors of, of the text would tell you this is primarily about the fact that Christ was glorified in the crucifixion. That he was lifted up between heaven and earth. And he said, if, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. I'll be glorified. They will understand. I won't have to ask people to honor me. I won't have to demand respect. People will see from then forward who I am, what I came to do, and the faithfulness of God in providing all we needed simply by looking unto him and believing. Scripture goes on. Not only the glorious announcement, but also there is this evening uh, the growing arguments. The growing arguments. Now, again, have to come back. Again, stick your finger there in chapter 7. Go back to chapter 20 and verse 30. If just uh, John chapter 20, verse 30. There are, or, excuse me, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of this, the disciples, which are not written in this book. That is, this book or any of the biblical narratives. But these have been written. That is, the reason I've included what I have in my gospel narrative is this. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Okay? That's why John was writing. So he's writing because, listen folks, he says this. In, in verse 40 and following through verse 44, he's talking about this growing argument among the people. Remember Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword? Now that doesn't mean that he was raising up a militia. That wasn't meaning that he's always trying to cause disarray in homes and relationships and, and in communities. That's not it. But there is a dividing aspect of a sword. You're either on one side of it or you're on the other when it cleaves, okay? And that is exactly what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. It puts people in one of two categories, believers and non-believers. Believe, if, if anyone thirsts, if anyone understands that having gone through all of this, Seven straight days of asking God for water in the future while reflecting on his faithfulness in the past. All of that is not. But believing in me makes the difference. Look with me. He goes on in verse 40 and following. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, Certainly, this is the prophet. This is the prophet likened to Moses. This is the one that's been promised. This is the foreshadowing of the Messiah. And some said, this is the Christ. Verse 44, for, uh, excuse me, 41. 
Others were saying that this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Now listen, guys. I know you think this might be the prophet. You might, think, you might even go as far as say this is the Christ, the Messiah. But everybody knows. The Messiah is not going to come from Galilee. It's like, <laughs> you're, you're both wrong. You know, I know more than y'all about how to anticipate the Messiah. The one hoped for, the one that we're longing for. Under the threat of the iron fist of Rome, we're living now for decades. We want freedom. We are God's people. We deserve to rule ourselves as we so choose under his leadership. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 4 that in the fullness of time Christ came. I believe that. I believe there's no, historically, theologically, pragmatically, there's not a better time that the Lord could have come than when he did. The first time. I believe it's going to be a fullness of time when he comes again. And I'm just telling you, <laughs> I've never been a, ha a glass half empty guy. I'm a glass half full and now a lot more than half full. The times they are approaching. Everything's pointing that it won't be long. It won't be long until those of us are his are going to be caught up with those who have gone before us. With the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, the dead in Christ will rise. And we that are alive and remain will not, will not precede them, but will be re reunited with them. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's coming. It's coming soon. But the reality is that people are debating that hot-heartedly now, but they were debating who he was the first time. Was he really the one promised? Look with me. He says, in verse, it says, John writes of their conversation, this growing argument, has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Not that David lived there his whole life, but he was born there. He, his early years were there. John doesn't say a thing. He quotes the arguers. He, he tells what the, the statements were, but he never says, Oh, but don't you know, Jesus was born like David in Bethlehem. Because everybody said, Well, he's from Galilee. He's from Galilee. He's from Galilee. And we know Messiah doesn't come from Galilee. Well, neither did Jesus. So... That doesn't preclude him from being the Messiah. He is one born in Bethlehem. He is a true descendant of David, both biologically through his mother and legally through his adopted father, surrogate father, Joseph. And when Joseph named him on that eighth day when he was circumcised, you will call his name Jesus? He was saying, I'm the one responsible for calling him what he's going to be called. I take legal responsibility for this child. So he passed on as his son, yes, adopted, yes, stepson, however you wanted to label that. But he took on and he also affirmed he was his firstborn and gave him all the legal rights of being the firstborn descendant through Joseph of David. Look with me. Verse 43, so a division occurred in the crowd because of him. <laughs> Not peace, but a sword. 
That's the thing. You can be ambiguous. You can be, um, how to say, agnostic about a lot of things. But you can't be agnostic, ambivalent. You can't be in the middle of the road about Jesus. You're either going to receive him through believing in him or you're going to reject him by rejecting his offer of salvation. There's only two. There's not multiple. There's a division. No matter how many arguments the, the atheist and the skeptics and the foolhardy will add, let me just tell you, it comes down to this. You're either in Christ or you're not. And let me tell you, at the real bottom line, that's all that matters. Look with me. He goes on. Verse 44, some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. How so? Well, verse 45. You see, not only was there this glorious announcement by the Messiah himself, yes, the Messiah, the one promise. And not only was there a growing argument, that's the second note tonight, a growing argument, but third, there was grievous arrogance. There was grievous arrogance. You see, when there's a division about Jesus and people land on one of two sides, it's often the case, if you observe very closely, that those who are on the opposite side away from Jesus, not in Christ, not willing to believe in him, those that are not, and I'm, again, I'm not painting with a broad brush. I'm just saying this is, this is the division. I'm not saying that everybody on the opposite side of belief who have not yet come to know Christ never will or never can. That's not the case. But we do need to be understanding that's where they are. That's, <laughs> I told you I moved into a house this week, or moving, as uh, Brother Jerry Todd was saying a while ago, it takes about six months to be moved. Uh, and we're, we're feeling that very really. Uh, but we're meeting our neighbors too. Let me just say, God put me in the middle of a ministry field. I mean, they're not like me. I hope they like me. But they're not like me. Their, their, their choices, their, their family situations, whatever, just totally different. I'm just, and I, I'm, as uh, Hugh Callens used to say, I'm so happy. If I was any happier, I'd be two people. I mean, I'm just excited about what God's going to do because I believe God put us there, that particular spot, not just because it was a, a great floor plan for our family and grandchildren as they keep coming. But it was right where he wanted us when, we wanted, when he wanted us there. And we're so grateful. God, God has poured out blessings. But let me just share with you. When people are opposite of Jesus, we don't just count them out. We, we, we call upon the Lord saying, Lord, how can we help them understand? Look with me. What happens? The officers then came to the chief priest. These are the ones that were sent to seize him, to arrest him, and they didn't. And it says there, they said to them, why did you not bring him? 
no, no question about who we were asking you to retrieve. Seize, retrieve. The officers answered, I'm just, and this is just, folks, this is so exciting. You got men, hardened men, inundated with the Pharisaic, listen, at this moment, it's not just the Sadducees or the political operatives that were the ones that went between Israel as a nation and Rome as an empire, but now the Sadducees who are much more what we would call liberal, they don't, they don't hold to all the extraneous traditions of the Pharisees as much. Uh, they, don't be, they don't believe in an afterlife. They're the ones that asked Jesus about the man who uh, died and left his wife, and she married one brother after another, and they finally the seventh brother died, and then she died. Whose wife is she going to be in heaven? The, it was a mute question because they didn't believe in the afterlife anyway. They just wanted to catch him up. But now you know something's about to happen in your life when people who are normally enemies of one another, at odds with one another, have combined forces against you. And that's exactly what was happening. And so they come and they say this to these men. They know who they're going to have to answer to when they return. They know the thinking. They, they're part of that system of thinking and, and teaching and, and pharisaical and religious uh, uh, strictness that has been imposed. And they were supposed to be the executors of those choices. But they come back and say, never Never has a man spoken the way this man. And in the language of the New Testament, this man is emphatic. It's as if he's saying, this man, apart from anyone you could put up against him, no one has ever spoken like him. Wow. Isn't that wonderful? That the one who could have... <laughs> who could have gone toe-to-toe with the greatest scientists and theologians and governmental leaders, no matter how smart and quick-witted they might have been, Jesus was the one who never spoke as anyone else had. I believe in large part it was not because of how smart he was, but how wonderfully concerned He was that anyone and everyone could understand what he was saying. Dr. Rogers always uh, capsulized that to us so often, not only to us preacher boys, but to everyone. You remember him saying, put the cookies on the bottom shelf so everybody can reach them. Amen? That's what we want to do. That's how Jesus operated. He could take the grandest concept of all the cosmos And bring it back down to one thing. What do you really need to do? What is life all about? Believe in me. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. I'm the bread of life. I'm the good shepherd. He always wanted to make sure that the fellow in the back row or the child at the front who seemed fidgety knew that if he sat down, they could come over and sit down in his lap. They wouldn't have to go away from the back row wondering, I I don't understand what that preacher said today. 
It sounded good. Everybody seemed to be impressed, but I don't have a clue what he meant. He always wanted us to understand that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He was going to be glorified on the cross. And anyone who wanted to satisfy, to quench that thirst within, not not physical thirst alone, although God is so gracious, so good to meet our physical needs, he was talking about a much more desperate need, the need of of a starving, drought-ridden soul. Look with me. The Pharisees then answered them. It's a rhetorical question. They're not looking for an answer from these men. They're, they're just put out with these officers. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? <laughs> I am the way, the truth, and the life. <laughs> you think you're going to get led astray by him? <laughs> no one of the rulers or the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? You, you, you're, you may be officers, you may be our, our, our strong arms, but you've been around us. You've been observing us. No one of us has believed in him, have they? <laughs> but this crowd, that is the common people, which does not know the law, is accursed. I told you I was going to come back to this verse. They were so elitist, so arrogant, so grievously arrogant. That's the third note on your notes. The grievous arrogance is right here. You see, they looked down on the common people as being unable, and there's been religions since then that have said the same thing, unable to understand the law, the Word of God. In fact, they didn't even encourage, they just, you just tell, let us tell you what to believe. Oh, that's been historically repeated time and time again. But the word of life, Jesus Christ, (laughs) would have us to understand. These very men who say the crowd, who don't know the law, are accursed. Guess what, guys? It was their responsibility to teach the law accurately and faithfully and persuasively so that the people, the common people, could understand it. So why would they say they're under the curse of God, they're under the the condemnation of God, if it's our responsibility to teach? Because they were eaten up with arrogance. They were so bent on destroying Christ that they didn't even understand. Those who have been in darkness have seen a great light. Look with me. I, I understand the arrogance of that moment, but I also tremble at it. Never let us that know the Lord and have been in the Word for any amount of time begin to think ourselves better than anyone else because you see no matter who you are no matter what your particular calling in the body of Christ is it's our responsibility to teach the next one what we have been shown in the word of God by the living word of God you see it's our job always to be about the great commission making disciples not for our benefit not for our downline but for his glory 
Look with me very quickly. You guys have got about two minutes to finish your listening, so you need to let me talk faster. Nicodemus, <laughs> you remember what they just asked? None of us have gone believing this Jesus, been led astray, have we? And then John includes Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, one of the rulers that are in this conversation, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? (laughs) You're not one of his friends. You're not one of his compatriots. You're not one of those country bumpkins either, are you? They knew well because in John chapter 3, when Nicodemus came to him, the very wording of John's gospel tells us that Nicodemus was not just a ruler. He was likely the chief teacher of the time. I mean, he was the academically knowledgeable one among these rulers in the room. And all he's saying is, let's let the law hold up. Let's treat him fairly. Give him a fair trial, if you will. And then they continued as if they needed to tell the most learned man in the room. They say, search, that is search the scriptures, and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Well, you know what? When I started my doctoral work across the street, well, it was actually down at uh, um, uh, the Germantown campus at the time, but Mid-America, when I started my uh, doctoral work, I was just there for a, a day of talking and seeing what I needed to get in line to enter the program. And I sat down, it was at lunchtime, and, and because I was being hosted, that is, by the man who would ultimately become my, my professor of record to help me through the whole process, he sat me down with the other professors. Now, I'd known those men from when I was in the master's program and blessed by them. And, but, you know, getting to eat lunch with them was pretty special at that moment. And so I can still remember Dr. Milligan looking over at me and saying, well, Mike, what are you going to study? What, what field are you going to study? And I said, well, missions is going to be the focus of my PhD. He's, you know, in his fine, ironic, probably a little bit arrogant way. Well, why don't you just get a D-men? Why do all that? Now, please, my brother has a D-men from mid-America. It's a fine degree. It's just a different degree, okay? But in, in academia, a PhD or an MD, that's that they they please understand, I'm not this this I'm not breaking my arm. This is not about me. I'm just telling you what the situation is in academia. That's the top end of the of the pyramid. So they're telling this man, Nicodemus, Professor, you need to go back and search the scripture. Because no prophet has ever come out of Galilee. Jonah was a prophet whose father was a prophet, Amatea. I think I'm saying that right. From Galilee. The one, remember the sign of Jonah? Three days in the belly. Jesus said, like Jonah, I'll be three days, and then I'll rise again. You see, one of the things I also learned that day at that table at lunch 
Not only that I didn't need to take any of Dr. Milligan's classes, praise the Lord, was that, to be very honest with one another, they would tell you. Here's what happens when you go into the Ph.D., you learn more and more about less and less until you know everything about nothing. It's so, I mean, when, I, when people say, well, what's the title of your dissertation? When I say it, they go, oh. And there's no other questions. Why? Because in order to pass, you have to frame it in certain ways. Now, I know it's practically helpful, but, but nobody else does. Now, here's the thing. These men had become so narrow-minded that they'd learned more and more about less and less until they knew everything about nothing. And they couldn't even tell one of the most memorable stories in all of the Old Testament, the story of Jonah. An entire book of the Old Testament recorded the man from Galilee. Now, let me just share with you one final thought. When you begin to understand who you're going to trust, consider the source. Consider the source. Do you want to consider the source of your authority, as your, your rest, your peace, as tradition and religious activity and staunch, strict belief about you got to be one of us, you got to do like we say? Or are you willing in the moment, even in the most critical moments, to say, I'm still going to believe God for who he is. It may not line up with what you guys are saying, but I'm going to trust him. Because if I'm real honest with myself, there's nothing I've ever done that gave me peace. Even anything I did religiously, spiritually toward God. That look what I did for you. Look what I did for unto you. Look what I did because of you. That never gave me any peace. But when I understood, oh, what he's done for me. Peace forever and ever. Like a glass calm lake. Friends. When you consider the source of your peace, when you consider the, the, the source of your joy, I mean, this was a, jo a harvest joyful uh, feast that they were celebrating. But when you contemplate on the eighth day of your contemplation, of your celebration, you need to come back to the idea. Mm. Consider the source. And does your, as we sang earlier, does your hope rest on nothing less than Jesus Christ and his righteousness? Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. May it continue to be as the spirit itself, that fountain of living waters. May you take that word by your spirit and make it a blessing, not only to us, but as a conduit, Father, as that spring that serves to nourish and water and hydrate others spiritually. Father, make us a blessing to many in the days ahead. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.